From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The story of the UK is an economy that has got real momentum. What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. UK inflation is becoming much more homegrown. We have huge potential as an economy in the UK. This is a time to tell Israel there is a path to peace. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Welcome to the programme. A bit later on, we're going to hear from the Treasury Select Committee Chair Harriet Baldwin on sexism in the City of London. Yeah, I wonder if Rishi Sunak's had time to do his Christmas shopping. <laughs> is that where we're starting? <laughs> no, I think is the answer. Perhaps not this week. today, <laughs> but not this week. Yeah, it's certainly been quite something a week, hasn't it? Remember, we started off discussing what jeopardy it was for the Prime Minister with that vote on immigration. And in the end, well, he survived it very comfortably, didn't he? No votes against and not enough abstentions from those troublemakers on the right uh, for it to be defeated. So I think we have to chalk that up as a win uh, for the Prime Minister. And interesting, his allies uh, on in the party also saying that winning that vote shows that the Tory right are not as powerful as they claim. Interesting this, isn't it? Members of Sunak's cabinet urging him to take a lesson from the vote that the uh, the right of the party is fundamentally disorganised and not as large or powerful as it claims. Yeah, OK. So that may be their political argument. It's obviously going to be a live one because the small boats and the immigration policy issue is going to roll into January. Mm. But look, it has been a difficult week. Uh, the Prime Minister has also been really busy because he gave an interview to The Spectator just today. His line on criticism against him is simply, you know, that you're looking at this too much as a glass half empty issue. But on the economics, I, I do think there is um, an issue for, actually for both political parties. Tax rises are coming. This according to a former member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, Martin Will. He was speaking to Lizzie Burden and I on Bloomberg Radio this morning. Have a listen. The level of debt is large. Interest rates may come down, but they're still much higher than we had two to three years ago. That does create a fiscal hole. Projections rely on sharp cuts to public spending, and those are going to be extremely difficult. My guess is that whoever wins the next general election will have to think of a tax-raising budget. Tax-raising budget. That comment from Martin Wheel, he's an economics professor at King's College London. I mean, that's a bit of a mic drop moment, you know. That's the sort of underlying reality, at least according to that one economist. He's one with a lot of experience. Yes, an unpalatable truths there from from Martin Wynn. I mean, I don't think we're going to get any tax cuts for the next budget because it is uh, election year. But yeah, 2025, I think the government is going to be, whichever government is, is going to be in a very sticky 
fiscal situation. Well, I think where there is some good news, and we discussed this with Dan Hansen yesterday on mm. the podcast, is we are likely, or the market thinks we're going to get some rate cuts next year. It's good news if you're in debt, not such good news if you've got savings, of course. But uh, the market is pricing in 100 basis points. That's one percentage point uh, of rate cuts during the course of next year. And actually, some data out today from Rightmove, which says that five-year fixed-rate mortgages have already dropped from the peak back in July, which was just over 6.1%, down to below 5.1%. Mm. So that's a significant easing, isn't it, just over the course of a, a few months. So on the interest rate front, there is some positive news out there. Yeah, maybe mortgage holders won't be under quite so much pressure, but obviously not until perhaps uh, later next year. Now, there are so many calls for money, investment, action right now. The UK's outdated national infrastructure means that the country is at high risk of a catastrophic ransomware attack. That is the finding of a parliamentary report from the Joint Committee on National Security Strategy. Well, the UK has already seen a number of serious incidents, including the WannaCry attack on the NHS in 2017. The Office of Budget Responsibility said last year that a ransomware attack could wipe more than 1.5% from GDP, and they've already been used against the UK. Well, joining us now is the chair of that committee, Labour politician Dame Margaret Beckett. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg UK Politics. W- what are you most concerned about, uh, and what are the risks of a, of, of a catastrophic cyber attack on the UK? I think the risks are quite substantial. I wouldn't put a number on it. What am I most concerned about? I think I'm, I'm most concerned with the number of organisations who are who still have legacy systems and possibly um, haven't really considered how vulnerable they are to an attack of this kind. And the other thing that concerns me is the the sort of, I think, the quite extraordinary phenomenon that this has apparently become commercialised, that there are organisations who themselves have the skills to mount a ransomware attack <clears throat> who are packaging it, packaging it up and selling it to, the, to any comer with enough finance. So you don't have to be expert in yourself you can buy a package pretty much off the shelf that will enable you to mount such an attack and of course it can be very lucrative yeah and companies are, are often very well aware of that and spend money um on you know security and 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 data protection in order to avoid these sorts of issues but when it comes to the kind of aging infrastructure and public infrastructure the money required is simply so enormous is the labor party ready to commit to fund that sort of preventative work at this point i'm not on the front bench and i'm not committing the labor party to anything I chair a select committee whose job is to scrutinise what the government is doing and highlight where there are weaknesses. And here, there do some, definitely seem to be some weaknesses. Do you think that either party has really got a handle on this? Are any senior figures in Labour or in the Conservatives really worrying about this risk? Good question. I think my own colleagues are aware of it, um, but of course we're not in charge, so it doesn't fall to us to make any relevant decisions. Um, I'm, theoretically, the Home Office is in charge of all this in government, and it did seem quite clear that the previous Home Secretary was really not interested in anything other than stopping the boats. Um, the Home Office has had a, a consultation. That the, the only piece of major legislation that we have is, that is relevant to the area is 30 years old, Um, and was put on the statute book before the internet existed. So it's not really likely to be very much fit for purpose. Mm. Uh, um, 
the government has done nothing other than consult so far about whether or not there's anything different that we should do. Um, so uh, I think definitely there aren't enough people and senior enough people. We would we would like to see this responsibility go to the cabinet office and to be put under the direct responsibility of the deputy prime minister, along with a whole lot of other cyber stuff. Yeah, that, that's been rejected by a government spokesperson. Perhaps this will come into the foreground, though, given election security as we go into a general election year, probably next year. Um, is that of, of concern, kind of election safety security well, again? Theory, around- sure. I mean, the, the national um, body that, that looks at these issues for, for computer security um says that there is clear evidence of attempts to interfere with our elections last time round mm. would the government care i'm not sure they would We've been discussing the latest uh, polling on the show over the last couple of days, and it does seem that Labour has a good chance of winning the next election. You, of course, were alongside Tony Blair in his 1997 uh, election landslide. What, what, in your view, are the biggest threats to to winning that election for Labour? Well, the biggest threat is always um, the the feeling that the present government has tried very hard to cultivate um that you're all as bad as each other and there isn't any point in changing in voting because nothing changes um which is so so untrue um it's the only lever that people who are born without wealth and power have um so that's the greatest danger that people either think it's not worth voting or um or think it doesn't matter who you vote for and therefore make a mistake in their choices yeah, indeed. I mean, we'll be hearing from the Ipsos um, CEO in just a moment who's been talking to us about that very issue that trust in politicians telling the truth is uh, incredibly low, record low. We also, though, have been speaking to the former Bank of England policymaker Martin Wheel, and where there is perhaps an issue for both political parties, as he sees it, former MPC member, uh, you know, well-respected economist, he says that actually tax increases are coming no matter what party wins after the next general election. That, that more money is going to be needed to deliver the government's agenda. Do you think that's true? I, I honestly don't know. And I would urgently counsel my colleagues uh, who are in the Treasury team not to take at fi- face value anything that they're told by the present government, because not in 1997, but in 1992, I was the shadow chief secretary to the Treasury. And we knew... Um, or we certainly believed, and I think most people everywhere, including in the city, believe that the government wasn't telling the truth about the state of the economy and the the amount of borrowing and things of that kind. Um, And that was quite correct. But we had no idea the scale um, of the deception. We thought the government was was hiding um, about seven, eight billion um, of of borrowing that... um, that they were not, uh, they were seeking to conceal, uh, which would have been bad enough. But it turned out the following year that it was going up to fifty billion, which we never even imagined. Um, so, my very strong advice to my own colleagues mm. uh, who are looking at these things now is: don't take anything for granted. Wait until you're there and you see the actual mm. numbers. That's that's interesting advice. Also, as former. Um, foreign secretary yourself i'd be very interested to understand 
you know, we spent a lot of this past year talking about a more uncertain world, more war and conflict and these great challenges that we face, AI so much. Do you think that the UK should increase the defence budget? Again, that's a big sort of issue for NATO member countries and one that surely the next government will have to think about too. Well, as I say, I'm not on the front bench. I don't speak for my party at all on these things. But it does seem to me as an individual and as an individual MP that the the present government has run down our armed forces to a very considerable extent, quite alarming. Um, I think we've got a smaller army than at any point since Napoleonic times. Um, and I know that naval colleagues are incensed about the problems in their service. So um, I think it's certainly something that will need to be looked at very carefully. As I say, I'm not in a position to commit my party to anything, but um, if any Labour government had treated the armed services the way this Conservative government has, they would have crucified us. Margaret Beckett, thank you so much for joining us on the programme. That's Dame Margaret Beckett, who heads up the Joint Committee on the National Security Secretary and, of course, uh, former Foreign Secretary in uh, the Labour government. Well, from shaky electronic defences to shaky faith in our lawmakers, a new poll says that trust in politicians has hit its lowest level since they were first asked the question 40 years ago. According to the Ipsos Veracity Index, only 9% of the British public say they trust politicians to tell the truth, compared to, at the other end of the spectrum, 88% for nurses. Yeah, I mean, if you're a Londoner, even more sceptical. Earlier, Katie Linsell and I spoke to the Ipsos UK and Ireland CEO, Kelly Beaver. We started started off by asking her why our faith in politicians is now at rock bottom at the moment. Well, there'll be a number of factors feeding into it that you can see across a wider range of polling that we do. There were big pivotal moments for government when we saw the issue of faith in politics and politicians rise up one of our other issues indexes, which tells us what people are really worried about in Britain today. And that was the point of the Partygate scandal. But also whenever we had that brief trust interlude in and around September 2022, and we had significant economic shocks in the country, those two moments drove people to be really concerned about faith in politicians and politics more broadly. So I would say that would be feeding into it. But then there is a general mood in the nation and a low level of confidence in government more broadly. We know government ministers as well as politicians are very low in this veracity index uh, in terms of people saying that they trust them to tell the truth. And I think it's a mix of confidence of delivery and also some of those shocks in trust. Kelly, can we see a difference in opinion, if you like, depending on the demographic, whether you live in London or whether you're a Labour or Conservative supporter? Is the data sort of drilled down into those different categories? Yes, yes, you can indeed. So there are even lower proportions of people who say that they would trust politicians if if they're based in London. So uh, the British public in London, only 3% say that they would trust politicians. And there's also an age difference where it's as low as 2% of those in the age category, 25 to 34, who say that they trust politicians. So there are some sizable differences there. And then on Conservative and Labour, which of course, is an interesting way to split out the data. You know, if, if you're voting Labour, you're more likely to trust trade unions and your Conservative counterpart. That makes a lot of sense. But on politicians, 
those who voted Conservative in 2019, 20% of those say they would trust politicians, comparatively to only 9% of those who voted for Labour. So there are big differences there too. Wow, cynics in London then. In terms of what this means though for the UK, how disastrous is this as we head into a general election year? How disastrous is this for democracy? I know that you've also done at Ipsos some wider work on issues around a mistrust and and sort of disenchantment with democracy. So I think what any of the major parties will be worried about is, yes, their vote share, but also people's willingness to turn up and vote. And that is potentially looking at some of the numbers around trust, around the mood of the nation, how they feel about politics in general. And also, we we know that around half of people are saying they really just don't know which way they would vote in a general election. And there is quite a degree of um, don't think that either party would necessarily do a better job than the other. We have around half again that say, you know, Conservatives aren't doing a great job, but I'm not really convinced that Labour were going to do any better. So there is, uh, there could be people not turning up for the actually polling themselves mm. to do, do we care enough about the turning out at the polling booths when we get to the election. And so both parties will be working on, yes, their vote share, but also encouraging people that their vote matters. It's worth coming out and voting for them and it's worth trusting them. And this, of course, all in the context that Rishi Sunak sort of came into number 10, promising to restore trust in the Conservative leadership after the, the leadership of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. So it, it's not a huge vote of confidence for him, it would seem. Um, if we look at another category in this index, um, the other big fall is police, uh, I think, who have mm. dropped about 20 percentage points since 2019. Is that another London-centric topic looking at the re- reputation of the Metropolitan Police or, or is there a broader thing to look at here? I think this is broader, actually, on on the police. So it is the lowest level we've seen for them in 40 years. Actually, they've dropped 20 points now since 2019. And and there's a a broader story around some of the decline that we're seeing. Only 56% say that they trust police now. And they used to be one of the more trusted professions in the same that we would have said about nurses and ambulance workers, etc. So I, I wouldn't tie it to one particular police force. I mean, in terms of those professions, you know, on the flip side, the ones that are trust more trusted, um, to tell the truth, mm. is nurses, doctors, teachers, professors. I mean, they've all been on strike this year. You would have thought that their credibility might take a hit from that, but clearly not. Still trusted to tell the truth, and that is the that is the key measure. And when you look at how people determine whether somebody is trustworthy or not, it's a whole range of things. Whether they they think that they will do what they say they will, whether they will work in their best interests, whether they feel that they're well led. There there are seven different things that actually impact on it and for those professions people are more likely to say that they they will do what they say they will and they trust them to tell the truth and that they work in their interests so even in spite of some of the strike action you're right they are still some of the most trusted professions in Britain today. So that was Kelly Beaver, the CEO of Ipsos in the UK and Ireland there. I mean, pretty grim in terms of what people think about politicians. They really do not trust them at all to tell the truth. But it has wider implications for the general election, for our democracy and so much more. Yeah, and interesting that the uh, latest YouGov figures uh, show on in, in whether the leaders are doing a good job. Not just that Rishi Sunak's ratings have plunged this year, but actually Keir Starmer's have gone down a lot. Uh, as well. So that's just another indicator, I think, of kind of people's uh, displeasure with politicians and, and sort of what we're being offered at the moment. Mind you, uh, it's uh, lots of other leaders also who are under pressure too, because I want to sort of turn our attention to the City of London also being investigated, uh, reviewed, um, inquired about 
by MPs after this series of sexual misconduct scandals in the financial services industry. I mean, you may or may not have been across it, but the CBI was one. There was also a, a very, very well-known investor, um, you know, who denied allegations against him, but um, found himself also accused of sexual misconduct. And so MPs have been investigating, get this for the title of their investigation, of course, sexism in the city. Uh, so we, earlier we were speaking to the Treasury Select Committee Chair, Harriet Baldwin, about this. She's been Conservative MP since 2010, has first-hand experience because she worked in the city herself. She started at JP Morgan, actually, way back when, um, one of her earlier jobs before becoming a politician. But she was also instrumental in carrying out a previous review of women in finance back in 2017 when she was the economic secretary to the treasury so we also quizzed her actually about what needs to happen then to deal with misogyny with the pay gap with opportunities for women in uh, the financial sector obviously a highly paying one here in the uk have a listen to what she said the view of the committee is that the financial services sector it's one of the great jewels in the UK economy. It is a fantastic place to work. And it's a place where, in fact, you know, people uh, have very successful careers. Uh, people uh, have been well paid. And it's also one where you want to make sure that the UK uh, attracts and retains the very best people from all over the world uh, to work in this sector. And so to do that right, you've obviously got to create a culture where everyone can thrive. And that's why it's so important to our committee uh, to look at how things have changed. What we have picked up in our evidence uh, is that there doesn't seem to have been much progress since 2018. That's coming through very clearly in both the data that we've been uh, given in terms of evidence, but also we've uh, been very grateful to some brave women who've come in anonymously and given us off the record evidence that we are summarizing anonymously for our inquiry. And we're hearing that despite you know the fact that we're in the 21st century um, it can still be very challenging uh, for young women at the start of their career and there are also you know points when um, women have babies that um, can also be quite challenging so it's been quite eye-opening. Harriet which are the worst sectors for this? Well interestingly what we're finding is that the Women in Finance Charter which was the initiative set up by government back in uh, 2016 launched by Mark Carney when he was governor of the Bank of England really important piece of work uh, done by Jane and Guardia then um, it's interesting that that now covers over a million employees in the city so lots and lots of financial services firms have signed up to that charter and the charter sets out things that the board will take responsibility for. It's obviously it's voluntary, but it is now very widely adopted. And in those bigger firms, I think this is uh, taken uh, much more rigorously. What we're mm. finding is we're picking up in some of the smaller businesses, some of the smaller firms, uh, and you know, without um, giving away things that might be in our report, you know, certain sectors where things seem to be you know tougher for young women at the start of their career, tougher for women taking career breaks for children. The critics say, though, that the Women in Finance Charter basically doesn't drive accountability. 
and that that is at the root of why change has become so sluggish. I mean, also, the UK has been at the forefront in terms of gender pay gap reporting. There's still a 25% gender pay uh, gap for women in the city, and it's worse for financial services than it is in other industries. So the issue is that the initiatives, the sign-up, the voluntary stuff, it's not making enough of a difference. It's not really driving accountability. Well, that's exactly why we've uh, opened this inquiry again um, to look at that. Uh, there were recommendations we made back in uh, 2018. Um, obviously, we'll refresh those recommendations. And I think that point has been well made in the evidence that we've uh, been receiving. And uh, so we will uh, consider all of these points and, and report on this in the new year. Is there commitment from the government for something more forceful in order to create change? I think the commitment from the government is that this is an incredibly important sector to the UK. Uh, the government wants it to grow, thrive. You know, the taxes paid from this sector pay for a good chunk of our public services in the UK. It's a really important area. You highlighted the fact that the pay gap is still very wide. You know, that's a reflection of this is a very well-paid, well-remunerated sector. And in some sectors, uh, like, for example, investment management, the pay gap is even wider. Mm. So it's uh, it's extraordinary to see. Um, it, in our report in Venture Capital in uh, July, we put out something which said that of every a pound raised in Venture Capital in the mm. UK, only two pence goes to women-led businesses. So there's a huge scope for even more success for this sector if they can get this right. What about the banker bonus cap? Because the 2019 report said that that was a problem for this and yet it's been reinstated or lifted. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, something that the regulators were very keen to see lifted. Uh, As you know, it was something that we could do now that we've left the European Union. Um, From the regulators' point of view, they would much rather have a sector where um, the fixed costs and the, um, the the overhead, as it were, of the sector is uh, kept at a manageable level and that people are only rewarded um, by bonuses when they um, do particularly well and that can be paid from profits. And of course, there are other measures that have been taken to do with clawing back those bonuses, things that were done in reaction to the financial crash, which I think are entirely appropriate. Well, that was Harriet Baldwin there talking to us about her efforts to make women uh, feel more welcome in the city and the financial sector uh, more broadly. Do need to sort of, do sort of wonder how much progress has been. It's uh, six years ago this was uh, started. It does seem that these scandals still keep popping up. We've, as you say, we've had quite a few just in the last uh, year or so. Uh, I mean, the city has been incredibly male-dominated, hasn't it, for, for many years. I do get a sense that that is changing now, but whether it's changing at pace, I think, is, is, is another question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's why I really want to follow that Treasury Select uh, Committee report and see what their findings say, whether there's going to be push for anything more than sort of voluntary codes uh, it's going to be a very interesting one to continue covering well that's it for today if you like the program don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen this episode was produced by tiwa adebayo our audio engineer was max green i'm caroline hepke and i'm ewan potts we'll be back with full analysis of the bank of england's rate decision for you tomorrow this is bloomberg Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.